This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Well, what a day yesterday was. There's still followed from it. We were just having a discussion in our 980 CFPL newsroom, and I think we need to have a discussion about this because I kind of know where I stand on the issue of ghosts and call it paranormal or supernatural. I've always kind of believed in it, and there's a reason for that. I can cite a number of examples, and maybe I will. I mean, I'm not going to spend a, a whole show telling stories. I'd rather know what you feel, but I'll tell some stories at some point. But I'll outline kind of the timeline of events that took place from Friday up until yesterday when we were lucky enough to be invited to do a live show at the Grand Theater on the 100th anniversary of the disappearance of former theater owner Ambrose J. Small. And there have been things from the moment we started to prepare for this show that have happened, and they lead me to a couple of different questions. One simply about paranormal, one simply about ghosts, because we were talking about this in the newsroom, and we had some people who were right on board, and we had other people saying, absolutely not. And a lot of it stems from a video that we shot that you can find on 980cfpl.ca. You can go there right now. You can go to my Twitter feed, at Stubbs980. It's right there. You can go to my Facebook page. Uh, but again, go to 980cfpl.ca, and you'll see it in the Grand Theater story. So news has been going on since then. So a couple of stories have gone by. But just look in the local news feed, and you'll be able to find it. I'll tweet out that story just to make it easier if that's where you want to go. But if you're already on Twitter, just look me up, at Stubbs980, and you can see the video. And the video appears to have a couple of different things in it. And you can believe what you want about anything. We didn't set any of this up. And I'm going to do a better job right now explaining what happened if you were tuned in yesterday. But the question that I'm going to have, at least for the next half hour, we'll be talking with Megan Cauley of Global News. She's a national online journalist. And we'll be talking about not tracking ghosts, but tracking kids. Tracking your kids. Tracking your grandkids online. And how you feel about that. And I'll give you my perspective on this because I've got two teenagers. And we have, if you've listened to London Live before and you've heard me talk about my family and parenting strategies, you may disagree with them completely and you're completely welcome to do that. I don't know if I'm doing it right. I'm just doing what I'm doing. And so we're pretty liberal and we're pretty open with our kids and we have really open relationships where... I, I don't believe my kids have ever kept anything from me because I've never snapped because they brought something to me and told me about it. And that's that's been a relationship again. I don't know if I'm parenting right. I don't know if I'm doing a good job. You just kind of do it. You just kind of deal with it on a daily basis. And like anything else in life, you try and do your best. So we'll talk about tracking kids online because it's something that's done very easily. Is it right to do it? We'll look into that. Next hour, we're going to look at something that I hope you'll find fascinating, even if you're not a sports fan, because this deals with kind of a business challenge. You could look at this from a business perspective. You could look at this from a lifestyle perspective. You can also look at it from a sports perspective. There's a lot of talk around the NFL, certainly, the NBA, even the National Hockey League to some extent, about putting a team in Europe. 
and what that might be like. Now, every year we've got a global series in the NHL that travels to Europe, plays a couple of games, the guys come back. We've had players go to Japan. But would you put a team stationed on that continent? Could you do it? Well, let's stop asking questions about could you and realize the answer is already yes. And it's being done by a team in Toronto. It's being done by the Toronto Wolfpack, a rugby team. They are stationed, they live, they work, they play in Toronto, Ontario. But their league is in Europe. And yet they make it work. So get ready if you have business acumen, if you have kind of that entrepreneurial spirit about you. We're going to talk with John Pallett, and he's the vice president commercial with the Toronto Wolfpack. We'll do it in about an hour, and we'll talk about this very thing. But I do want to lead off about ghosts for lack of a better description. Because some really interesting things happened to us leading up to our trip to the Grand Theater. And it all started back on Friday. And I'll just run through the timeline. You may know some of it already, but just stick with me. And then I want to ask you the question about whether or not you believe that there is some kind of paranormal activity out there. Maybe some other dimension. I don't know. Again, I don't have the answers for this. I only can believe what I believe, same as you. So here's where it all began. We were, as I said, lucky enough to be invited by the Grand Theater to do a show there. And you don't just get to walk in the doors of a closed building, but we went yesterday between 1 and 3, and we did London Live, live from the Grand Theater, on a very appropriate day to be there. The 100th anniversary of the disappearance of Ambrose Small. Ambrose Small was the theater owner. He owned other theaters in Toronto. And 100 years ago yesterday, he disappeared. He had just deposited a $1 million check from selling theaters into his bank account, his personal account. The money was never touched. So it's not like he disappeared and then the money kind of disappeared with it. The money was never touched. And it's always been a wild mystery. So Katie Dobbs has written a book called The Missing Millionaire, and she was in London last night. And so we talked with Katie on Friday in preparation for the show, and this is when odd things began to happen. We were interviewing Katie, a recorded interview, which we played yesterday on the show. You may have heard it. And as the interview was going along, and I've done hundreds of interviews in this same studio, in the same way, and they always go one way. You hit record, and you start doing the interview. When you hit stop, the recording will stop. That's it. It's pretty simple, actually. Even a guy like me can do it. And while we were doing this interview, Katie brought up the ghost story element of the Grand Theater and was about to tell a ghost story involving Ambrose Small. And the recording stopped. I didn't touch it. It just stopped. So I reached over. And I quickly opened a new file because Katie was still talking and I didn't want to interrupt her. So I opened a new file and I hit record again and it recorded the end of our interview. And then I saved both of those files and my thought was on Monday morning I will come in and I will edit those files together. I'll find a way to do it where hopefully it sounds as seamless as possible. We're pretty lucky these days. We've got some pretty good editing suites and and, uh, editing technology, and and it's not too hard to do something like that. So I figure I'll do that on Monday. So I came in yesterday. This is just the first part of many stories in this. I came in yesterday, 
And I put those two files together, and then I went in to find the place to edit. Normally, if you have something stop, and then you start again, uh, it's it's a mess. You know, it'll sound like, and and the dog was run, and the and it'll start again, and it won't make any sense whatsoever. I went back and I listened for the edit. I couldn't find it because the whole story was there, like it had never stopped. So I can't explain that. Then we went to the Grand Theater, and we had a great time. And I want to thank everybody there. They were so hospitable. They were so nice. And it's just, it's a, it's a wonderful place to be. It has a really nice vibe about it. And it was great to do a show from there. But we ended up talking to a few different people. And at the end of kind of every interview, I would, I would just ask about, have you, have you seen anything that's kind of out of the ordinary? We didn't put a focus on ghosts or anything like that on the show, but I would ask, you know, have you seen anything? And I was told by one employee, no, but I'd like to. And so I just happened to say, well, hey, if, if somebody like that wants to come and be involved on the show, something, I said something to the effect of that, then you're welcome to. And we took a quick commercial break. And when we came back, we've got a great crew there. Kent Guy was there, and he has done thousands of live events. This guy knows live events as well as you know the way to drive to your driveway. I mean, he he leaves no detail left undone. So all the microphones were checked. Everything was checked. Everything was prepared. Everything was smooth as possible through the first hour of the show until I said that. Well, if somebody wants to come and join us on the show... By all means, go ahead. And my microphone cut out. Doesn't happen. That just doesn't. The mics had been checked. So we quickly made a switch and we continued on with the interview. And then they tested the microphone when we went to commercial and it worked again. So that was a strange thing. And I mean, you can you can chalk these up to anything. I'm not saying, hey, I have definitive proof that there was something taking place out of the ordinary. I don't. I'm just kind of telling you what took place. So, then, as the story continues on, we had the recorded interview with Katie Dobbs, author of The Missing Millionaire, and while that played, I said, we've got 10 minutes. Could we go and, and shoot a video? And, and Matt McInnes, who was working yesterday, kind of said, we need to shoot a video somewhere. And I thought, okay. So I asked, could we go and shoot a video somewhere? And that's where this video comes in, and this video has been seen a few times, and I don't know what to make of it. Um... We go in, and, and the video is being shot on an iPhone, and I have a microphone in my hand, and they take me down to the room that was Ambrose Small's office, and it's a room filled with hats. And so we're in there, and all of a sudden, a hat, I tell you, I didn't bump something, and I even say it in the video, and I think, I think you can see it in my face, but a hat falls on the floor. And it's kind of wobbling back and forth for a few seconds. You can see this in the video. I'm not making this up. This is just there. And then I kind of turned back toward the camera and I said, well, this has been a look at Ambrose Small's office. I think what we, we got what we came for. And so it ended. And we walked out of the room and we finished out the show. And I came downstairs and Katie Dobbs, the author, was just coming in. And I showed Katie the video of this hat falling on the floor. And as we're watching, there's this little orb light that appears to come from under the hat that I had put back on a pile of other hats, and it kind of comes toward the screen, and it flies away. And so I don't, I don't know what that is, but there are two of those. There's an orb as we go down the stairs as well that is really hard to pick up on, 
you know, if you're watching on a phone. But this video is on Twitter right now. It's on 980cfpl.ca in that grand theater story. And I just, I don't, I don't know what to, what to make of it. You know, I have my own beliefs. Here's my question to you. Do you believe in the paranormal? And if you don't, please watch my video and help me to explain what it was that's going on. Got an email from Rose saying, uh, I think those long bus rides on the weekend made you so fatigued, you imagined those ghosts. I, You know what, Rose? I'd, I'd like to say sure. I've had some other strange things that have happened in my life that make me think, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. And I'll maybe get to some of those stories as well. But if you don't believe and you can explain away what this little orb would have been doing, then let me know what it is that, that you believe in all of this. We've got technology now that, because we have it in our hands, can catch all kinds of stuff. And it's not just cameras. It's knowing where people are. As you walk around, ping, 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 ping. It's very useful when you're, say, going for a run and you want to find out how far you've gone or how fast you're going. It's useful when you're sleeping. Things like that can add up. You can check your steps pretty easily. You can also find where loved ones are. And that's where we come to our very next topic on London Live. Megan Cauley is a global news national online journalist. And right now, Megan has a story at globalnews.ca, and the headline reads, Parents are using tech to track their kids' location. Does it cross the line? And it's a really fascinating question. And I've got my own beliefs in this, because I've got my own teenagers. And while we don't use the Find My Friends app, I've got them on Snapchat, they've got me on Snapchat, and as long as I've checked in on Snapchat, which I don't do a lot, but if if I'm there, they can see, hey, that well, that's where Dad is. Or I can see if I want to, well, that's where they are. And it's just kind of one of those things that we do. And as a parent, to tell you the truth, all I'd really be looking for, and I don't know whether this app exists, are my kids okay? That's all I want to know. And I don't want to bug them, you know, being that, that dad who goes, hey, just, you know, you okay? Why? What? What have you heard? That's, you know, that you don't want to be that person. But in order to be able to log into an app or something and, yeah, heart's still beating. Uh, yeah, they're, uh, they're doing okay. I'm, I'm out. You know, I have all the information that, frankly, I feel I need. But this becomes a really interesting question. If you're using tech to track your kid's location, are you crossing the line? Joining us right now, please welcome Megan Cauley from Global News to London Live. Megan, thanks so much for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, let's kind of look at, first off, for anybody who's unfamiliar with the tech that you can use, what would be a popular way, if you wanted to track someone or track your kids, what would be a a popular way to do it? Yeah, so I think you mentioned it earlier uh, for iPhone users. There is an app. Actually, I think it's available on Android as well now because it's so popular. It's called Find Friends, and um, it's actually pre-downloaded on new phones typically. And basically what it does is um, it's a big map. You open it up, and you can authorize different numbers or contacts in your contact list to have access to your map and vice versa. 
So, you know, if I have your phone number and I have the app, I can pop it in and then I can track your location through your phone's GPS at any time. Okay. Now, some people might be hearing that and saying, yeah, no, I'm I'm not into this. And that may have been the old attitude. But if, if you pop open, say, Snapchat for a teenager, they will know where hundreds of their friends are. And they'll all be on this little map because none of them seem to care that anybody knows where they are. So when when you were doing research on this, what did you find from people in terms of being willing to say, yeah, as long as I authorize it, you can know where I am at all times? Sure. So yeah, so I think I think you just touched on the key point about this conversation is that there's even a conversation being had and that that consent is given. I think that really seems to be the turning point for people. So for me personally, I know my mom would just be so way more comfortable knowing that I was safely at work at the beginning of the day and safely at home at the end of the day, that kind of thing. Um, and she doesn't want to text me all the time and ask me. So she said, you know, hey, I found this new app. Can I put you in it and, you know, just have your location when I need it? Then I would feel comfortable saying yes. But I think that that line is if you're doing it without my knowledge, then that makes people uncomfortable. And also if you're going to use the information against me in some way in the future, <laughs> then that could that could cause some uh, conflict as well. I love that. So in other words, you can see where the person is. Basically, if you've ever been on Google Maps, a lot of these apps make use of the same sort of thing where you can see where someone's location is. You can make the map bigger. You can make the map smaller and whatever little avatar or icon shows up in that spot. And so, yeah, using the information, because if she can pop open that app and, you know, happens to be up at four o'clock in the morning and finds you somewhere (laughs) at four o'clock in the morning, uh, would you want her saying the next day, hey, Megan, uh, uh, what were you up to last night? See, this is the thing. So I'm in my 20s now. So if she said that to me, I would probably just roll my eyes and say, (laughs) why were you on the app at 4 a.m.? But if I were 16 or 17, I think that would have really bugged me for a number of reasons. You know, one, as a teen, especially in those super formative years, what we're hearing from parenting experts is that they really want to feel trusted. They That's important to that age group. And it's also important to them that they feel like they have their independence. So they can leave the door and say, okay, mom, okay, dad, I'm going to Fred's house. Um, I'll be back at this time. And that you are comfortable enough to say, okay, I trust you. You can have that independence, you know, drive safely, whatever it is. Um, I think where we maybe start to cross the line is when parents are tracking their kids without their knowledge, or maybe they got their consent first, but then after the fact are saying, oh, I saw you took a drive while you said you were going to be at Fred's house. Where'd you guys go? Uh, how long were you there? And sort of, you know, corroborating their replies with information from this app. That's when it can get a little sticky, and I think it could maybe hurt your relationship in the long run. We're talking with Megan Colley, Global News National Online Journalist, and we're talking about something new that Megan has looked into that raises a fantastic discussion uh, that deals with being able to track kids, parents being able to track their kids' location, and whether or not, as the headline reads, it crosses the line. So, Megan, you were able to talk with parents, a dad and a mom. What did you hear from them? So uh, this was really interesting because I thought that this dad approached this situation in a really healthy way. 
so basically what they did with their kids when they were given, so they said, you can have a cell phone when you start high school, um, but the rule is that nothing on this cell phone is confidential, and I'm not going to use that to my, you know, I'm not going to be asking to look through your phone every night, but what I am going to say is if I'm suspicious that something, you know, bad is happening or anything like that, then it's an open book policy. Um, and what they also said as a part of that was, uh, let's all be on this Find Friends app. What I like about how this family did it is that they use two-way tracking. So not only is it the parents being able to know where the children is, but the children are able to see where their parents are at any time as well. And I think what this did for this family was uh, eliminated the need for those check-in texts, like you were talking about earlier, texting your, you know, maybe 15, 16, 17-year-old son, who's already maybe a little bit annoyed that you're always talking to them, um, checking in and saying, hey, where are you? Did you get there? Are you safe? Uh, when are you going to be home? Instead of that, you can just, you know, open up the app, and that really eliminated a lot of that unnecessary conversation for them. And it also you know, made the parents just feel better about it. It also helps them when their eldest son went off to university because, you know, as you say, being out at 4 a.m. As, as the youth like to do, um, instead of sending that annoying text as a mom and being like, where are you? It was comforting for both sides that they could just see, okay, he made it home safely. We knew he was going to be out tonight, but he made it home safely. Yeah. And as a parent, and I find myself in this very situation, we kind of have things that are similar to that. And it's just in the relationship you have with your kids, it might not work in everything, or you might not be able to just spring it on a 17-year-old if you haven't had that open relationship already. Hey, guess what? Uh, we're going to do this Find Your Friends app, and I'm going to start paying attention to your life, okay? That's probably not going to work out. You also talked to a mom. Was there anything different about what she said to you? Not not totally. You know, I think for most parents that I spoke to, it was um, just seen as sort of a positive way to com- continue communicating with their child. But w- the one thing the mom I spoke to did tell me was that she, what, uh, what you just said is, you know, you can't have a big blow up fight with your kid about them lying about where they're going. And then the next day, introduce the Fine Friends app and <laughs> pretend that that will be you know, healthy and, and it'll go over well. Um, what This really needs to be an extension of an already trusting, an already open communication sort of relationship between you and your child. And they really need to understand that this isn't because you don't trust them or this isn't because you don't want them to have independence. It's really just for your own peace of mind and that you won't be using that information in the future to criminalize them or make them feel badly or anything like that. Megan, thanks so much for raising the topic. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. You too. That's Megan Cauley, Global News National Online Journalist. Let's take a break. I want to talk more about this because it doesn't necessarily have to be your kids. Let me put it to you this way. Would you be okay letting your spouse or your significant other, would you be okay letting them know where you were at all times of the day, should they want to check in on you. Would you be alright with that? Now, in the sports world, there has been a lot of talk, much like the conversation that went on about going to the moon or going to Mars or sending a little spacecraft or getting into boats a long, long time ago. Sir Francis Drake, Christopher Columbus, sailing away. There's a lot of talk about 
what it would mean to plant a flag permanently on another continent. We've got leagues like the NHL, the NFL, the NBA, and they're forever going off and doing little jaunts to other continents, other countries, playing games. Here's our product. Buy our hats. And that's what they're trying to do. But could you actually have a team that operated in a league like the NFL, the NBA, or the National Hockey League that didn't just have teams in two different countries, i.e. Canada or the U.S., or do what Major League Baseball did a while ago and have the Expos play part of their games in Puerto Rico before they can find an actual home for them? Could you have a team based on another continent? And they never seem to have an answer. And I don't know why that is, because it's happening. That kind of thing is taking place right now. The Toronto Wolfpack are doing that right now in professional rugby. In fact, they have rocketed up the charts in professional rugby. And they're based out of Toronto. They don't just use the name Toronto. They play games in Toronto, but they also play games an ocean away. John Pallett is the vice president commercial with the Toronto Wolfpack. And we get an opportunity to talk about how all of that works and what the challenges are in doing it. John, welcome to London Live. Absolute pleasure. Let's kind of talk about what has happened here. When you started and you envisioned where this could go in a hurry, did you envision where you are right now by any chance? No, I don't I don't think we did. There was a five year plan to make it to the Super League. So when when we joined the league, which is um, the UK's RFL system, it's comprised of teams from the UK and France. When we joined the league, we went into the bottom of the three divisions, and that setup has promotion and relegation, a bit like Premier League soccer in the UK does, where teams kind of swap places at the end of each season. So to get to the Super League in five years would have meant we would have got promotion in two seasons out of five, uh, and we did that within three seasons. So we had one year in the third tier and then a couple of seasons in the middle tier. Um, and then on October the 5th, as, as a lot of your listeners will be aware, we won the grand final, which was the final game of the season. And the winner of that game moves from our division and goes up to the top tier Super League. So now we're in the very best uh, league, the very best rugby league uh, structure in the Northern Hemisphere. And that's, that's amazing. That's remarkable. You thought five years you've flown up the ranks. What would you point to to say this is what had made it happen? Well, I think initially, right at the very start, the organisation was built on a foundation of a, a director of rugby, Brian Noble, uh, and a really good coaching setup and performance setup for the team, um, and bringing in some players that had played at the very top level across the world who, who kind of believed in our vision to grow the game in North America. And I think when we were so successful in the first year in getting out of the third tier, it gave the organisation off the field the confidence to... Uh, to really invest in the team and, uh, and, um, and try and accelerate that five-year plan, uh, we brought in uh, more kind of very good quality international players uh, in the second year. Uh, and we had two very good seasons in terms of our win-to-loss record um, in, the, in the championship, which was a middle league. Um, and, and yeah, I think off the field, the, uh, the structure of the coaches, uh, the training facilities and things that we have and the amount of attention to detail money we spend on our travel and our accommodation and so on just set the team up really well and then what happened in terms of the commercial side the sponsors we brought in the ticket sales we did the member base we grew the kind of global reach that we had our games were televised all around the world it just gave us a lot of confidence as an organization to um to, to really invest heavily in terms of money and resources um to try and 
get to the Super League earlier than planned, and, and obviously that's what we've been able to do. And away you go. We're talking with John Pallett, Vice President Commercial with the Toronto Wolfpack, and we're looking at a number of things. Number one, the success of this franchise, when you figure they have just not just made it to the Super League, they haven't kind of sat back and celebrated, hey, we're here. They've signed Sonny Bill Williams, who is a huge name in rugby. But you mentioned one of the challenges that you must face, and that is accommodations, that is travel. We've got so many teams or so many leagues that think they can put teams on other continents, and we haven't seen a North American league try this, but you're doing this. Can you kind of describe what your team's travel is like throughout the course of the year, and then we can get to how you make it work? Yes, certainly. I mean, there are a lot of the American leagues, the NBA, the NFL, I know Major League Baseball as well in more recent years, have have taken games um, to the UK. There's been games in, in Scandinavia and in in, um, in Asia. Uh, obviously, we love when that debate comes up every year uh, and every couple of months with the media because we're always the reference point for saying, oh, actually, no, there is a team that are already doing it and we've been doing it for three years. Uh, we've got a great partnership with Air Transat. Um, they're they're a, a major partner and a huge part of our, our organisation. Um, and from from an, op- from an operational standpoint, three years, what we've learned to do is just to replicate the very be- the very best practice that we've learned from hosting probably thirty five to forty teams in Toronto over three years. So we have the same flights in and the same flights out. We use we have the same kickoff times at the same stadium. We use the same hotels and the same food and the same training facilities. So for us, the only way we can really make it work is, is to find something that works and just repeat it for each of the teams that are travelling. Now, this year in the Super League, we've got 11 teams travelling in from the UK and France. Um, they're bringing, we imagine, uh, around 12,000 fans to an average of 1,000 travelling fans per game. So that's kind of a new logistical challenge for us this year is making sure that we're ready and the city's ready to host those fans. But yeah, in terms of the teams, we play a pre-season in the UK because um, a lot of our players are UK-based and because we have to go into an initial run of games in the UK. And then when we get into uh, kind of early to mid-April, the team come over here and that becomes the base really for the next six months. And then they're kind of reverse commuting and heading back to the UK for the games in, in the UK towards the back end of the season. But certainly for the, for the summertime, we have um, a 25-man playing squad and probably 15 coaching and performance staff. Uh, and they come and just make Toronto home for six months. And then, yeah, as I said, the opposition teams, they come to Toronto. They'll be playing in the UK or France a week before and the week after. They just fly in for a couple of days and then they fly out, which is probably much what I would expect when a, a West Coast team comes over and plays the Blue Jays or the Leafs or the Raptors. It, it, it's kind of that, that setup, but the team just want to get in. They want a day to recover from the flight and to train. Then they want to play the game and then they kind of want to get back and, and start their recovery back home and preparations for the next game. So, yeah, we've learned a lot in three years and we haven't always done it like this. But I think as we head to Super League in our fourth season, we're, we're pretty much quite, we're quite competent and confident at hosting, hosting both our team and the away teams. So do you kind of make the first part of your schedule a home-heavy schedule? You play a lot of home games and then tend to go on the road in spurts? Or, or do you wind up having to go back and forth a lot during the season? 
No, so our league's been, been very understanding. We play at Lamport Stadium and um, we, we can't really host games until April. Um, there is a dome which is on, on the field for rec- so recreational sports players can play underneath in, in the warmth. You know, there's 10, 12 domes across the city. Lamport's no different. Then once that dome comes down, the weather has improved and we're, we're able to host the games here. So we actually play um, the first 10 games of our season away. So we play 10 games in the UK. And then when we come back to Toronto in April, the schedule's kind of been shifted in terms of more home games to balance it out. And by the time we get to the end of the season, we've obviously played as many home games as away games, albeit we do take a couple of our home games around the UK. So we play a game in London each year, which is just for 60,000 Canadians in London. And, and we give up one of our home games to, to play in the capital. Uh, and this year we've got a couple of couple of games as double headers with, with, with teams in the north of England. And that, that just helps us to grow our brand around the UK, but also helps us to avoid needing to host a game in Toronto in, in February or March. <laughs> and in doing that, in, in being based kind of in the UK for those first 10 matches, do you wind up having to find housing for people in a certain spot, or do you kind of live in hotels that entire time? Well, I think we've got um, a, a lot of our players, obviously, in order to be successful, we've, we've, we've pulled a lot of professional rugby league players out of the UK and Australia. So um, we've, we had a couple of uh, Canadian players over the last couple of years, and we're always looking to bring in more Canadian players and develop more Canadian players. But a lot of our UK-based players are based in the UK. But when we fly in, um, the likes of Sonny Bill Williams, and we've got six or seven other stars from Australia, New Zealand, and the Pacific Islands, uh, we will look after them for accommodation because they're, they're coming over from, um, from the Southern Hemisphere. So when they're in the UK, we'll provide accommodation for them. And it's normally, normally housing because they're there for an extended period. And then when they come to Toronto, they, they room with the team, which is a kind of they, they live in condos, essentially, in, in the downtown core. And in terms of the, the time change for matches, is that a big deal? Because that's something else that comes up, that uh, the players' lives are going to be really disrupted. Do you find them disrupted that much? No, I think so. our team will never really fly for one game because there'd be a huge player welfare issue if we were expecting the, the Wolfpack to travel backwards and forwards every week. So we have uh, the league looks after us in terms of a schedule. We come and play two and three game blocks in Toronto. We actually make, we only, we make five trips through the season to fulfil all of our games. And I think for the opposition, they're only coming once. So they know they have to come to Toronto. The schedule's already out, so they can build around. Yeah, they've got six, most of them have got six months to plan their trip, and we're obviously booking their hotels and their accommodation. So they're well aware. And I think the, the progression in sports science and nutrition and, and health in, in recent years means these are top-level professional athletes. Rugby is a, a gladiator sport. We, we believe we've got some of the finest athletes on the planet play, playing our sport. They're quite capable of, of managing their bodies around um, around a kind of seven-hour flight in each direction. Right, and how great is it to hear that 1,000 fans approximately will travel to see their team play and will come into the Toronto area? That's rugby right there, isn't it? Well, I, I think that's the thing. The, 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 the fan base in rugby, in rugby league uh, in Europe, much like soccer, is, is one where fans will travel to get behind their teams. And, and of course, we've been around for three years and, and everyone has in, in, in our sport has known all about us. This is the first time that Super League teams have had the opportunity to come. It's the first time they've been, we've been in their division. So, yeah, I mean, we have some great partnerships with 
Tourism Toronto and Toronto Global and the City of Toronto. Um, and they're very excited as our partners about that because it's, it's real kind of money coming into, into Toronto. If, if 12,000 fans travel this year, they're going to sleep in a lot of hotel beds and they're going to drink a lot of beer and obviously they're going to book 12,000 flights to get over here. So that really excites us and, and that's along with obviously some of the new new signings, including Sonny Bill and our head coach who's just renewed. But the thing that we're really most excited about for this year is is hosting that many fans. We previously hosted three to three and a half thousand in a season, uh, but obviously the potential of this project was all about bringing the Super League and bringing the famous clubs and top athletes to come and compete against us in Toronto and to bring those fans with them. But yeah, some of them are being told by people like Leeds Rhinos and Wigan and St. Helens, who are three of the highest profile clubs, that they think they'll get 1,500 fans comfortably. And, and those fans are already booking their flights and their hotels. So, yeah, it, 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 we can't wait to, to see what our stadium looks like with, with kind of 15% of the, the capacity being filled by kind of very vocal and noisy and passionate visiting fans. Love it. Well, John, congratulations again on where this franchise has come in such a short period of time. And thanks for helping us to understand what it's like to play in a league that is on another continent and succeed in doing it. Well, my pleasure. I know it's very complicated, so I hope I articulated it well. Oh, that you did. That you did. Have a great day. Thanks very much, Mike. John Pallet, Vice President Commercial with the Toronto Wolfpack, the world's first transatlantic professional sports team. They make it work well, don't they? You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.